Previously on Funny Science Fiction. Then I spend the next 20 minutes explaining what Pokemon Go is. Oh, the no. first night of its release <laughs> to eight cops who are standing around me <laughs> trying to be like, yeah, there's a Squirtle right over there. I just- There's a Squirtle over there. there. <laughs> Welcome to the Funny Science Fiction Podcast, which was launched in the year 2020, along with other plagues to humanity. Well, if you ever find yourself surrounded by a pack of velociraptors primed for an argument about time travel, our guest is the guy you need to have on your side. But if they're velociraptors, then he should be able to get in a few really good photos before they eat you. So our guest today on our show is science fiction author and photographer, uh, Terence Zavex. Uh, Terence writes about space travel, time travel, and dinosaurs. Many people are surprised to learn that his stories are the result of actual time travel. Well, it almost seems like it because he does such thorough research. His books are known for their accuracy and plausibility. Terry, welcome to our show. Hope I didn't uh, step on your last name too bad. I, you can go ahead and pronounce no, it. No, that's, that's fine. Zavitz is just fine. Oh, Zavex. Well, welcome to our show. We're glad to have you on today. Uh, Thank you. Great. So uh, just a couple of questions to get us started. I know you didn't uh, start off your life as a as a novelist uh, and, and you began that as you after you semi retired. So briefly tell our audience a little bit about your background and how you came to be an author. And the cat comes in, of course. Excuse us. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like a cat in the background. Not always. Uh, it is the Internet, you know. Well, I've been writing for years. And uh, but it hasn't been funny literature. I've written fiction in the form of many a business plan and and many a research grant. All right. Uh, but there was always also articles for microlithography and and a few other technical magazines that came along uh, over the years. Besides the jury's paper, jury papers I performed, uh, most of the work I did was in laser optics and semiconductor over the years and uh, all through that, uh, essentially science fiction reading carried me through many a long flight in yeah. the evenings uh, all around the world. I actually started reading science fiction uh, when I was about 10 years old, eight or 10 years old. And by that time I was already convinced as to why I wanted to be an engineer. Right. Uh, and uh, ended up following my dream. I never had any qualms about it. Uh, and when I retired, uh, I was doing a lot of consulting and I was getting drawn into uh, some professional work on the side. And my wife asked me, well, you're always reading fiction. Why don't you try writing some? And so I, I tried up writing and now I've stepped off into it. And it takes up at least four hours every day I have. Oh, well, we're glad you did. I, you know, I enjoyed your, uh, your stories. All right. So, Terry, when you write, do you focus more on being factual and scientific? Or do you think it's more important to have a good story for the people who are reading your books? Well, the story is what sells the book. So definitely I focus, first of all, on the story. A lot of times it's either a uh, something I've read about that generates an idea in my mind. Uh, more often than not, in one of the technical magazines or one of the technical papers that I still read. Uh, but very often uh, it's from some old experience I've had. You know, I essentially write about experiences I've had, uh, embellish it one little bit. <laughs> and uh, turn it into a good story. And then the question usually is, all right, I've got a story. Now, how do you make it happen? For instance, how do you 
travel through time. What would happen if I met a dinosaur? If I met a dinosaur, what would be its capabilities? How would it react? And uh, the dinosaurs happened to fascinate me because when I started writing about them in about 2010, 2011, they really were making a lot of progress in paleontology at that point. Yeah. Yeah. The previous two decades picked up a tremendous amount of information in the history of dinosaurs, and it just hasn't stopped. It's still going today. Isn't that awesome? Well, that's neat. Yeah, because, you know, there's been a lot of uh, recent movies and other media uh, about dinosaurs. And, uh, of course, the, the the big one has been the Jurassic Park series that everybody has uh, seen and enjoyed. So of the of the various different movie franchises and stuff, there you go. Yeah. Uh, which which of the uh, popular stuff that's been out there, which is your favorite and why? Uh, I think the first Jurassic Park. Yeah, has been probably my favorite. You know, as far as dinosaurs go, Jurassic Park, the first one was definitely my favorite because it had a it had a sense of awe and wonder tied in with it. It came after I read the book. It was kind of neat to see how well they did the computer graphics for that time in its uh, entry into the into the public domain. Uh, you know, it was great. You know, it was just like seeing them alive and moving for the first time. And they were pretty good. They were pretty, you know, pretty accurate. Well, that's good because yeah. Josh's favorite, it's always been Barney, so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that and HR Puffin stuff. HR Puffin stuff. I don't, I don't think he was. I, a, I don't him. think. I don't think he was a dinosaur. <laughs> he was something else, man. But yeah, <laughs> he was a dragon. He was a, he was a dragon. dragon. Oh, yeah, he was, right. wasn't he? Oh my gosh! Uh, I just remember this very strange costume of the yellow guy and the orange hair, and the, uh, that's all I remember. So, so Terry, congrats on being our first guest, at least that I'm aware of, that has multiple degrees in actual fields of science. Um, so you're like smart and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> From your bio, I see those degrees are in the fields of physics, metallurgy, and material sciences, correct? That's correct. All right. Now, I would imagine, uh, now I look at, at works like yours and I, you know, with your background, I would imagine that that provides a high level of descriptive actual science in your works. And I think of it much like a lawyer. Uh, who, you know, like an author like John Grisham, who was a practicing lawyer and then went on to write all these books about about being a lawyer in, in these fictional uh, stories because they're drawing off their experiences and off their background. Don't insult um, him, Tim. <laughs> you, you just called him a lawyer. Well, I was I was thinking more of referring to him as a, you know, com complimenting him on, on the, the oh, story. As somebody who's done compliment. Right, no. you know, because the the research that was being done and the background of his stories, Josh. <laughs> All right, but well, some of my best friends are lawyers. What the heck? Hey. <laughs> oh, now so, I offended you. Okay, I see. <laughs> so, Terry, my question for you is: Do you worry that your work is viewed as too hard to understand or highbrow for the average science fiction reader, because of the depth of the science the because one of the quotes I read from you is that you like to make sure that you have actual science more than science fiction in your stories. I have extrapolated science okay. in my stories. And uh, that, I guess, is science fiction. I think science fiction, the name is abused. For right. some reason, fantasy authors want to claim their stuff as science fiction. I don't understand that because fantasy sells more if you look at the genres mm -hmm. right. linked on site. Uh, I don't understand why they they want that if fantasy sells fantasy sells i mean tolkien's stories are fantastic right I mean, but then you know he's the king right 
one thing I try to avoid is a story that will get you into a long, big explanation. Some people do it by building their world, by describing everything in it. Somebody steps, new character steps onto the stage and you describe what color their shoelaces are and everything right. <laughs> on that. I try to do the same thing with science. I, I try to get enough of an explanation going along as the story is proceeding, but try to tie it into the action that's actually happening. All of a sudden, they're swirled around, all right? Mm -hmm into something that's gonna carry them through time and carry them maybe a hundred million years back into the past. You wanna know what it's gonna feel like, what you're gonna see. And maybe you'll learn a little bit as to why it happens at that point, all right? Uh, and I think it makes the story a little more real, all right? Uh, and improves on the impact. Uh, the first two books I wrote, as a matter of fact, I tried something differently. Uh, at the end of every chapter, I had references hanging back oh, to my okay. old technical days. So you could actually go back and see where I found out information in this behavior characteristic of the dinosaurs. Oh, interesting. Uh, how I could prove that they were indeed, uh, they, they were indeed early ancestors of birds, how birds were descended from them, uh, and actually see it. But uh, there were some people that absolutely loved that, but by far, I think it was too disturbing for the flow of the book. So sure. I stopped doing that sort of thing. Uh, in my new books, I've got a new series starting up right now called the uh, Jenkins Decatur series. Uh, which is not time travel, uh, but it's about the revolt of the first Earth colony from Earth. Okay. So it's a revolution, much like uh, in parallel with the revolution of the United States right. from Great Britain way okay. back. And uh, in tying in that, uh, I wanted to have neat weapons and technology, realistic that could be possibly made that I could like to work on. All right. And rather than explain it in all the details, I put an appendix at the back of the back of the book so yeah. people could ignore it or look at it all in one spot uh, and i have even more detail on my website so people get a chance to go to the website and read even more about the world and the appendix and free stuff that's all in there too awesome. some short stories okay so clearly you're you're writing intertwined some basic science fiction tropes uh space travel time travel and even some dinosaurs and so clearly this is not your average jurassic park uh spinoff reboot or ripoff um so Question in two parts here for you. What's your favorite dinosaur to write about and why? And also, speaking of Jurassic Park, how long till the Jurassic folks buy you out in a hostile gangland style dinosaur takeover? <laughs> uh, I'll answer the second one first. Um, okay. <laughs> they may approach me anytime they want. Right? I'd be glad to participate. Exactly. Uh, as for the, uh, the first question, uh, which I forgot. <laughs> What's your favorite What's dinosaur to write about and why? Yeah. Oh, the Hypsophalodon. Okay. Uh, that was a little fellow, actually smaller than a man. Huh. And the reason it caught my attention, uh, is what we've learned about it. It was an extremely advanced dinosaur that had almost human-like teeth. Seemed to live in packs, uh, burrowed underground, oh, wow, and uh, traveled in packs. And it was a, uh, it was both a meat eater and a vegetarian at the same time, uh, and was very much like humans. And it had a larger brain than normal. Hmm. Uh, and if you look back in the 1980s or so, uh, people were actually speculating on what they would have looked like nowadays because they were on a path what looked like to true intelligence. Mm. So yeah. I have in, in the first all three stories, as a matter of fact, in that universe. Uh, I have them meeting a, a group of hypsopolodonts that they didn't even know were inside of their camp. 
uh, and then gradually, like a parrot, they begin to learn. You know, my wife has an African gray parrot right now, and it's got about an 800 word vocabulary. It it can, if it wants to, actually hold a conversation with you. Well, that's cool. <laughs> right. Uh, and there was speculation that these dinosaurs were built properly. They probably could have done the same thing. Oh, interesting. So that's my favorite. Research on those. Yeah. I have to get the spelling from you, too, because <laughs> I think it's my hips are finally done. Is that, is that what it's, my hips are finally done? <laughs> yeah, but they called them hypes. H Y P. Okay. My hips are finally done. No, that's my father in law. Also known as Slee Stacks, right? Yes. <laughs> the land of time forgot. Yeah. <laughs> One question I like to ask authors, mainly because I'm in, always in awe of the creative writing process, um, because I'm not a creative writer. I can write functional information. Uh, things along those lines, but anytime it comes to a story, interactions, things like that, it's kind of lost on me. I'm not able to do that that type of writing. But so I always like to ask authors, what is the impact that you hope your work will have on the science fiction community at large, and what's been your highlight as an author thus far? Uh, the impact that I hope for, I hope people read the books and enjoy them. Yeah, they're meant to be enjoyable. I'm not trying to change society. I'm not trying to give warnings about society or warnings about people or like our old pal Crichton in Jurassic Park, uh, he always shoots down science. If you ask me in his books, it's yeah. always the scientist that's going beyond the bounds where he shouldn't go. My God, if scientists went beyond the uh, bounds where they shouldn't go, we wouldn't be here today. Right. We wouldn't be talking across these little telephones. Right. All right. Uh, and the second part of the question was... Uh, what's been your highlight as an it, author so far? Uh, working with Steve Alton, who's the author of Meg, both the motion picture and the books. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. All the books. Oh, nice. All right. And, uh, yeah, Tim Schulte, who's uh, my new editor, uh, who has handled a number of very famous authors, including did a proofreading, proofreading of uh, some of the J.K. Rowling's books. Oh, cool. Uh, okay. And... Uh, and uh, I'm hoping, I got an inkling of a start with David Drake, who is now reviewing my one book that hasn't been released yet. I'm hoping to get a review from him. Excellent. Uh, that's the highlight. That's the exciting part of it. That's cool. That's awesome. Right? What about, one thing I'm looking forward to is at some point going to a science fiction convention. Yeah. Never been at a science fiction convention. Yeah, right. I can't wait. Yeah, uh, that would be fun. I've been to some comic cons and, <laughs> and, and, and uh, had tables there and stuff, but I'm not. Uh, going to a science fiction convention yeah once all this oh. junk passes we're kind of hoping that we get a chance to jump into one of those yeah. as well so we are <laughs> yeah. so i think one of my favorite science fiction miniseries growing up was dinotopia are you familiar with dinotopia yes yes absolutely okay so it, for those who don't know it's an outrageous fascinating story about two brothers who find an amazing lost island where there's enlightened pacifist humans and intelligent talking dinosaurs that are in this utopian medieval society. So, yeah, so I said that's why I said outrageous, just so you know. Really, they were the hypsodonophilus. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, <laughs> you can't get beyond that. <laughs> oh, the hippie dinosaurs. That's yeah, right. Peace, man. Can't get beyond, can't get past the hips. Yeah. <laughs> so if you had the chance to go to Dinotopia, would you go? 
And what would you want to do there? I'd be interested in what the history of their architecture is. They, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's really unique. I mean, I guess I was kind of introduced to it when I bought my grandkids uh, some of the books that came out. And we have like a big coffee table book full of pictures and things. And then, of course, I read the story. And then after that, I watched the movie. All right. So the, uh, I, I guess the place and surroundings, I, they, made, they built a fascinating world. I thought it was neat. And uh, it was kind of neat. I mean, it wasn't any less believable than the, the Lost World of H.G. Wells. Or, right. Did I get that right, H.G. Wells? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Lost World or, for, you know, one of those screenplays or stories. Um, that's where I'd go. I'd, okay. I'd be interested in the, the architecture and, and what built up. Because they at some point they started out as dinosaurs building those things, right? You're right, exactly. Well, yeah. So how did that start? Yeah. And how did they determine whether to build this big enough for a brontosaurus versus a human or, or what and why and or how to how to find that middle ground or right? That that would actually be pretty fascinating. So you obviously have an interest in dinosaurs and paleontology, as we've been discussing. Um, so no doubt. But uh, you know, is there a common misconception or inaccuracy about dinosaurs that always bothers you? No. No. Okay. I'm. am sorry. That, that's that's a quick answer, but uh, yeah. I. I. I'm not sure what the misconceptions are, and and if there are any real worse than some of what our old theories were. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's been kind of sense. kind of fun just following the brontosaurus. I mean, first it wasn't, then it wasn't, now it is again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> If exactly. you know the story of the Brontosaurus, right? Not I've really. Heard it. It's been a while. Well, they back in the late 1800s, uh, they essentially had a race for collecting bones and getting them into the museums. Mm. So you had paleontologists against pure adventurers digging up bones all over the Dakotas. All right. And uh, the one fellow found a set of bones that he was ready to send over to the museum that was the biggest dinosaur ever found called the Brontosaurus. He had one problem. He didn't have a head for it. Mm. (laughs) So they picked the head off of another dinosaur, put it on it, Uh and the Museum of Natural History in New York City had this whole Brontosaurus skeleton with this false head on it for decades. And it wasn't Mm. until the late 90s, 1990, 1996, 97, that they said, hey, you know, there really was a brontosaurus and huh. they think it wasn't what it was originally, the, the body wasn't what it was originally classified to be. And so now we have a brontosaurus back again, along with an apatosaurus, which was the original body. Fascinating. No, I didn't hear that. Oh yeah, there's one called the uh, Dinosaur Hunters, a book on Amazon. Hmm. That tells you this. Uh, it, it's almost a. Uh, oh. <coughs> who was the paleo? Uh, the uh, the guy that went uh, that went all over the world looking for uh, artifacts, human artifacts and stuff. Uh, Indiana uh, Jones and went after. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it, it's not like one of his stories. It, okay. it, it, it's like one of his stories, but in real life. Okay. Huh. Nice. That's cool. 
So Deb would like to, uh, has this for you, Terry. She says, Terry, I love dinosaurs and I've enjoyed many dinosaur movies, but I really watch them for the humor. So I enjoyed the movie Caveman, dinosaurs from the TV show where they had those full animatronic, full body puppets. But I also enjoyed the live action Flintstones movie and thought the scene at the park where everyone is scared and running away from the sound they hear coming from the pterodactyl. What they were really running from was the giant sploosh from its bird droppings. Now in these movies, humans are put in the funny but realistic bits of life uh, if we perhaps lived in that time with real world dinosaurs. So question here, when your people go back in time, what fun but realistic things do you allow them to encounter in your books? Well, I had a very, a very playful plesiosaur. <laughs> uh, like to play catch a ball and throw it back at you. Think of Nessie, the right Loch Ness monster. Plesiosaurs mm -hmm. look like Nessie, but bigger than what you usually see in the pictures. So you have this long neck reptile coming out of the waves. All right, guys are scared. Or what do they do? They throw out a big ball of the only thing that was at hand, a clump of kelp and seaweed at her. She grabs it and throws it back at him. <laughs> nice. And, and that's what led to a one rather, rather humorous episode. And, and uh, she, in a later book, she actually became a, uh, a minor character in the book, uh, starting off running from uh, a school a school of mosasaurs hunting them at the same time. All right, uh, but it's good to keep humor into it as much as you can. I perhaps don't put as much into it as I would like because I think humor is always very entertaining and it draws the customer in, but uh, I don't know, maybe I'll uh, take some advice from you guys and put more in the future. There you go. There you go. So do you, do you, you know, with that thought in mind, do you ever hide any Easter eggs, what they call Easter eggs or secrets in your books that only a few people are going to catch, you know, because you talk about like this, this one dinosaur who was a minor character then, but as it becomes a major character later, do you yes. do anything else like that? Yes. Okay. I do. And uh, they usually come about the way I write a book is to outline it roughly. All right. And then I write it along the line. A lot of times you end up somewhere different. All right. Uh, once you get through that first hundred thousand words or so, uh, then you go back and you begin going over the book and you begin tying together things and taking out more than just spelling errors. You take out inconsistencies in the plot and stuff and you see where something's going to become important later on in the story. And you can give you a chance to go back at the beginning and add more of that character in the beginning. And that's the way these kind of eggs generated you know, easter eggs Perfect. are called yeah. right nice very good well, it is time for the part of the show that is my favorite which is the the game we play we're doing another quiz <laughs> so um this one is on sci-fi literature seems pretty applicable um so let's see here if you get three right you get one of our red shirt widows and orphans mugs. Oh, mine's disappearing in the forest. There we go. If you get Almost five right, you if you get five right, you get signed copies of Drayton's three book series, The Founder's Gifts. And if you get less than three right, well, you get your face on a meme that is then posted in our group. Do you accept those terms? <laughs> 
It'll be tasteful. It'll be nice. I don't know if you're okay, gonna go ahead and picture take that me, picture. Okay. <laughs> All right, I got pictures. Go for it. <laughs> are you are you good with it? I didn't yes, quite. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So our first question uh, starts with a quote from the uh, from the uh, book. It says across the Gulf of Space, intellects vast and unsympathetic regarded this Earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. You know which novel this is a quote from? Was it Sounds one? Like first men on the moon. World. What's that? Sounds like War of the World. Yes, I, it's multiple choice. So you can wait till you get oh, the question. You got it right. You did. <laughs> you that one. So uh, we'll give you a bonus for that. So since you got it. All right. Multiple so choice. Gonna... He doesn't need no stinking multiple choice. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. So it was All right, more... so Terry, uh, the science fiction novel, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was adapted from which production? Was it television, a play, a cartoon, or the radio? The radio. Yes, very Jolly good. good. Still my favorite way to enjoy Hitchhikers is to listen to those old uh, broadcasts. All right, for the cup. What play by William Shakespeare is considered proto-science fiction? Hint, because it features the classic mad scientist character type. Was it? Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot the multiple choice. I didn't think you needed it. I want to multiple choice. Oh, now he wants the multiple choice. <laughs> is it? Uh, and I apologize if I, I, I mispronounce this one. Coriolanus, The Tempest, Midsummer Night's Dream, Hamlet. All right. The first one that came to my mind was a Midsummer's Night. Okay. And that is incorrect. It is actually The Tempest. Okay. The Tempest <laughs> is because of the mad scientist character type that is in there. Yeah. Okay. All right, so our next question, we still get you in the running here. How many novels are in the Dune science fiction series? Was there four, five, six, or three? You mean the continuing novels with his son? Yeah, the whole series of Dune, the Dune-based novels by Frank. I'd say at least six. Six, yes. Yep. Very good. There's one the mug, sir. Yeah. So, all right, next question. Androids must follow the three laws that govern their interactions with humans. Can you name the novel? Childhood's End, Leviathan Wakes, Jurassic Park, or iRobot? iRobot, yes. Very good, very good. So here will be your saving grace question. We have a, an additional question here in case someone gets one wrong. Which 1951 John Wyndham novel is mainly set in the south of England and is about a plague of blindness that befalls the entire world? The Midwich Cuckoos, The Black Cloud, The Day of the Triffids, Tunnel in the Sky. The Midwich Cuckoos, The Black Cloud, The Day of the Triffids, Tunnel in the Sky. Uh, I know it's 
not the Trithers. I think it's the the, the Midwich Cuffins. No, it is actually the day of the Triffids. Oh yeah. Oh. Blind. Darn it. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was one of my favorite movies as a kid. The, he had uh, the the main character had eye surgery, and didn't get to witness this celestial event with all these meteors falling on the Earth. And the next day he wakes up. They're supposed to take off his bandages, and nobody shows up in his hospital room. So he takes off his own bandages. Everybody in the world is wandering around blind because they all looked at the uh, celestial phenomena and it blinded them. And it was actually aliens invading the earth and they blind everyone before they arrive. So he's the only person. What's, what's that? Maybe I got that mixed up with the night of the triffids. Okay, yeah, it could be. Uh, but the day yeah, there was a movie, I think it was the same. And there's still plants. Well, both were movies. Yeah. Were they okay? I don't remember the second one. I must have missed that. I'll have to look that one up. Oh, yeah. Well, there is. Thank you. You've been a good sport. Thank you, uh, Terry. For uh, all right, so, so you will be getting our red shirt widows and orphans mug. All right, I'm gonna go ahead and send you my books, anyways, just because uh, you've been so helpful to me and uh, with my books in the past. And well, uh, they're as me. enjoyable as those books are, I will certainly love them. Well, thank there you, you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, Terrence, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, where can people go to find more about you, your books, your other works? What's the best source of information for Terrence Zavich? Well, why don't you go to my new website? It's at okay. philipsnolan.com. P-H-I-L-I-P, Philip Nolan, N-O-L-E-N.com. Okay. And I used, I'm going to use that as a pseudonym because I'm sick and tired of trying to spell Z A V E C Z across the telephone and getting people to get all the letters right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can appreciate that. Um, yeah. With my last name, I certainly appreciate that. Um, yeah. So we'll make sure that, that we put that in our description so people can find you a little easier and find your books and, and all those things. So, and we want to remember guys, uh, as you're watching this, that the single most important thing that you can do to help us get quality guests like Terrence and, and continue to provide you with funny moments to listen to is subscribing. If yeah. you like and subscribe this video to this video and our future content, we'll be able to continue to provide you more and more. And then also please subscribe and check out Terrence's work and go to his website and, uh, and take a look at what he's got going on over there. And as always, feel free to look us up on our Facebook group, Funny Science Fiction. And listeners, please remember, if you don't like the show, it's okay. We have you covered. We'll post a video of us harassing Tim online for all of you to see in case you don't like it. Well, I mean, I suppose we already do that, don't we, Tim? Uh, every episode, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's content, you know. <laughs> Well, anyways, thank you for enjoying the uh, Funny Science Fiction Podcast. You've come to the end. You've wasted another hour of your precious time listening to us, guys. So, well, we really enjoyed having uh, Terry on. And one last word. It's important to remember that at Disney, if the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. Thank you. Goodbye now. It would be disastrous if we failed to mention our charity, the Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund. 
speaking of disasters, we all know on episode 48, 13 minutes and four seconds into the show, someday red-shirted Starship crew members will probably die after they have followed bad planning and land on Zetar, only to be taken over by the incorporeal Zetarians who are just looking for a good body to occupy. Of course, leaving their poor families with one last member. But that fictional charity of Red Shirt Widows and Orphans has now connected to a very real charity. And your purchase of Red Shirt Widows and Orphans merchandise, shameless plug, uh, also allows us to donate 100% of all profits to the awesome folks over at Wish Upon a Team. These fine folks help kids have a more comfortable stay in hospitals when their stay becomes extended due to illness. Let's take an opportunity to buy some merchandise and not forget about our neighbors at this time of need. Copyright 2020 by Drayton Allen. Original music by Jordan Michaels. Reference to any specific product or entity mentioned in this podcast does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation of or by funny science fiction or its sponsors. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. If you have questions about this disclaimer, please contact us via email at DraytonAllen at DraytonAllen.com.